today. Amen. You may be seated. Welcome to a church that's revolving around Jesus. Amen. Let's give it up for the worship band today. Praise God. Great job. Great job. We're in a sermon series on the book of Matthew. We're going verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We are in chapter 5, which is known as the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to go over some of the things we did last week. So it's a part two of the be perfect like your father is perfect message. And I want you to turn there with me now to Matthew chapter 5 verse 1. I want to try to review what I went over last week and get into the new things that we have for this week. Review and something new. When we go to chapter 5 verse 1, we see now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And so I want to make a plea today that everybody will be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Our church has made that our mission, the Great Commission. You know that if you've been here before. If you are a visitor, you know that now. You've heard the announcements. It will be announced to you by God's grace until Jesus comes back the same exact way. The pictures may change, but the information, the details will remain the same. We are going to love God and love people. We are going to connect you to the cross, mentor you with the cross, send you out with the cross by God's grace to see 100,000 disciples in this city with 50 churches. 500 around the world. If you want to do social justice, be a disciple of Jesus Christ and speak the word of God to the powers of this age. If you have a heart for immigration, speak the truth to the immigrant, speak the truth to the power and teach them to obey God and the laws of men. If you care today about racism and you want to see it ended in this generation, speak the truth that there is only one race, the human race. If you want to see prosperity, if you want to see blessing, be a disciple of Jesus Christ. The disciple message is the message of Matthew. Matthew is a disciple, and he is teaching us what his master taught him. Those of us who understand the book of Matthew, because you've been here before, basically, we're already starting at the end. Matthew has already seen all of this. He's already witnessed the death, burial, and resurrection. He, he was there when the Holy Spirit was poured out. He is writing this 20 years after the fact to catch us up. And so if we want to be like Matthew, we have to sit at the feet of Jesus and this church asks you to sit at the feet of Jesus. Berta, would you get me a glass of water, please? I've been fighting a little bit of a sore throat. Can you stretch your hands towards me and say, be healed in Jesus' name? Amen. I receive it in Jesus' name. When we look to the word of God, we see discipleship is what Jesus came to do. The ship that Jesus is sailing is a sail, is a sail ship with disciples. It's a discipleship. You all get that? You got distracted by the water. <laughs> the ship that Jesus is sailing is a ship with disciples. That's why it's called what? Okay, you got it. It wasn't that funny, but I'm glad you got it. I'm not good at pastor jokes. I'm really not. I'm really not. You laugh at me more than you laugh with me. That's okay. That's okay. I can take it. I can take it. But here's the deal. If you want to sail with Jesus, be in the discipleship. Just a play on words, but it makes a point. If you want to be with Jesus, be in the ship that he is piloting, that he is captaining, that he is that he's sailing. He's sailing it with disciples. Okay, now let's go on to the Beatitudes. Beatitudes are attitudes of blissfulness in the kingdom. When I read the first one, I want you to get it, and then we're going to go all the way to the end of chapter 5, and then we're going to tie these together. Look at the first Beatitude. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now go all the way to the end of Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. It says, be messed up, therefore, as your heavenly father is messed up. It says, try your best because your father wants you to try your best. Is that what it says? It says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. Now let's go up to the Sermon on the Mount sandwich or the perfection sandwich. I made this by God's grace after last week because I thought it might be helpful. We start 
in the Sermon of the Mount, chapter 5, learning that the only way we can inherit the kingdom of God is by admitting our spiritual poverty. There is no way to receive anything from God unless we first get saved, unless we first admit we are spiritually bankrupt. We don't come to salvation and put a tent on it. We don't say, God, you, you, you got about $90. Okay, God, I got 10 on it. Let's buy this $100 worth of salvation. We don't come to salvation putting anything on it. We come to salvation broke. And we not just broke, we poe, okay? And you know there's a difference between poor and poe. Amen. Everybody knows that difference. So th- th- this is how you come spiritually. You come poe. You come broke. But the Bible says you become poe no more. Okay, you laugh at that one. You guys like that one. Okay. Those who come Poe to the Lord, leave Poe no more. And you just can't say Lord. That you got to say low. So it's come to the Lord, Poe. You Poe no more. And so the idea is those who are poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Doesn't get any more richer than that. Doesn't get any more blessed than that. Doesn't get any more amazing than that kingdom of heaven is what you get when you admit your spiritual poverty. Jesus said he didn't come to save the the healthy. He came to save the sick. And you could say it like this. Jesus didn't come to save the spiritually rich, but the spiritually poor. He only came to save sinners. If you don't think you're a sinner, you can't be saved. Sinners are those who admit their spiritual poverty. If you were raised in Christianity, you may not have the same testimony as others who have been out there being wild, but you, like that person that was wild, has to admit your spiritual poverty. And that's why I teach my children, even at a young age, when you come to salvation, Bethany, you don't come with anything in your pocket. Remember those lies that you've told. Remember the times you've disobeyed mommy and daddy. You don't come with anything to offer God. Okay. Now, for those of us who have been out in the world and been wild and caught some charges and had to be be at the clinic a couple times, and some of your testimony you don't even want to testify to. Come on, you should know you're poor in the spirit, so you shouldn't have any problem admitting it. You have messed it up. But here it is: just as sure as you were to admit your poverty, your sin, your rebellion, you are to now confess your riches and your blessing and your identity in Christ. So now we can say we're saints. We are saints in Christ. We are blessed. That's why at the bottom of chapter 5, we see him giving us the most outlandish command. It's not a suggestion. It's not something you can just run over and just be like, that's a speed bump. I don't need to take this serious. This is a brick wall that you will encounter if you think you can do this any other way than with Christ. He says, be perfect. And if you didn't know what level of perfection he was talking about, he's not talking about this level down here like an earthly level. He says, be perfect like your heavenly father is perfect. So there's the standard. But how do I be perfect? Do I be perfect by trying to do perfect? No, because nobody can do perfect. We're not sinless, but when we, bec- we come to Christ, we what? We sin less. And so the idea is I can never do perfect unless I first become perfect. So I don't become perfect by God whittling on me every single day. He's, he's going to do it. He's going to do it. He's going to do it. No, Ephesians, and that was another book we went through verse by verse, says you are currently, if you're saved, Christ's workmanship. Now, today, created, past tense, to do all those good works. So because I be perfect, first at salvation, I can now do perfect. Do you get the distinction there? I can never do perfect but God can make me perfect. I can be perfect as my heavenly father is perfect. How is that? Is that a righteousness that I earn? No, that is a righteousness that is imputed to me. Quickly, go to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. <coughs> Excuse me, will teach us where our righteousness came from. It's an imputed righteousness. It is a foreign righteousness. It is a righteousness that does not belong to you. It belongs to another. It says, be reconciled to God. On Christ's behalf, we implore you, be reconciled to God. Because verse 21 says, God made him, talking about Jesus, to be sin for us so that in him we might become what? 
the righteousness of God. I become the righteousness of God. I don't do the righteousness of God to become. So if you think you're going to do good works to become a good person, you're going to do more, and you're going to see how much more you fail. And then you're going to do more, and then you're going to see how much you fail. And then you're going to do, 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 do. And then you're going to have a bunch of do-do. That's why you're not saved by good works. You're saved by the work that Jesus did. And you're not made righteous by good works. You're made righteous by the work he did. So go back to the, the perfection sandwich, please. Top Bun says, if you want this, you got to admit you can't do this. You see how easy it is to be saved? It will cost you everything, but it's not a hard thing to do in the sense of a doing. It is a releasing. It is a giving up. It is a surrendering. The person who is drowning, all they have to do is not fight the Coast Guard as they come down and they are saved. Just don't fight them. Don't resist them. That's why the Bible says whoever, res whoever resists God is proud and God says then he resists them. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the what? The humble. Now, I know you and I might say, well, pastor, I don't know how to humble myself, or I don't know how to do that. Well, that's why God empowers us with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes, convicts you, convicts you of your sin. The Holy Spirit comes and teaches you how to submit yourself to God. Don't resist him, and he will lead you. And the Bible says then he will regenerate you and make you new so you'll be poor no more. And then all these things that we're going to try to get through today, by God's grace, in the next 52 minutes, we're going to try to get through all of these teachings will be possible because you be perfect. You be perfect. Come on, that's who you are. You, you admitted you're a mess. You admitted that you can't do it. You admitted that you're poor spiritually, and then God saves you. He changes you. He imparts to you righteousness, and then now because of that, this is your life. This is what you do. This is how you live. You never did this to try to be perfect. You are doing this because you be perfect. So in, in another sense, you're not doing perfect to be perfect because you be perfect. Now you can do perfect. And that's why you repent. That's why, honestly, a Christian should repent when they sin. You're not repenting because you're saying, well, that wasn't my fault. That was an accident. No, you're not like a baby who spits up on themselves because a child that spits up on themselves doesn't owe the parent repentance. That does my eight-month-old child owe us repentance for making their mess? No. But does my 10-year-old child? Yes. You're like that when you're born into the kingdom of God. You have enough wisdom of yourself by the Holy Spirit's help to convict you. And so it's not accidentally falling into sin. It's not accidentally doing X, Y, and Z. And yes, you may not know it all, but it's still choices you're making to resist that now. And so what God wants you to do is repent for what you could have done otherwise. Never repent of a sin, if you want to be serious with God, that you're not really truly saying, I could have done otherwise, and now I never want to do it again. So when people ask me, they say, well, pastor, have you, have you uh, been sinless since being a Christian? And I say, no, but I sinned less. And then they say, well, you know, if it's kind of the same for you as it is for me, then why go hard on all of these things? Because you get forgiven, I get forgiven. If sin is sin, and you sin 10 times a day, I sin 100, and we all ask for forgiveness at the end of the day, uh, why not just go that route, you know? And then I could punch them in the face, take their wallet, and say, well, there's two sins I'm going to repent for today, you know? Punching you in the face and stealing your wallet. It's all just sin, right? Well, you see, we know there's a difference, don't we? We know there's a difference. All sin is sin, but there's consequences to sin. And then number two, when I sin, and I want to use myself as an example, when I sin and repent, I am literally saying to God, I never want to do it again. That's the only way I believe I'm truly being forgiven is when I say I never want to do it again. Because if I'm saying to, my, uh, you know, to myself and as I'm praying to God, God, I want to sin so I, uh, you know, be forgiven of this sin so I can keep on doing it, God's like, come on now. I'm, I'm smarter than that, Joe. Joe, I know what you're going to do. You're just going to go out and do it again. When you're done doing it, then I'll forgive it. When, Joe, when you really want me to take that from you, then I'll forgive it. 
But right now, while you're holding on to it, saying, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, you're not being serious, Joe. I, I know God like that. Do you all know God like that? So when I get into an argument with my wife, or I lust in my heart, or I lose my temper, or something like that, I am required, you are required to come to God and go, I want to be perfect. That means I never want to do that again. As much as I can decide in my heart today, my decision is never again. And then now when we get to the Lord's Prayer, which is really our prayer, the Lord's Prayer is in John 17 when he prays. He's teaching us to pray in Matthew in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. When we get to it, we'll understand this. Lead me not into what? But deliver me from evil. See, then we really mean it, don't we? If, if God's trying to deliver you, but you're the one keeping the, you know, the, you're keeping the prison door shut, and he's like, let me open the door for you. And you're, you're like, no, I want to stay in here. And he's like, here's the key. And you're like kicking it underneath the jail cell. At some point, he's like, you really don't want to be rescued, do you? You actually like the jail cell. Let me know when you want to be free and come out of this thing. Amen? Amen. So think of the perfection sandwiches. We admit we're not perfect. We admit we're as messed up as anyone is messed up. We deserve hell. We have sinned. We have fallen short of the glory of God. But yet, because of Christ, now we're saved. Now we're made rich. Now we're given all the resources we need. Think of spiritual riches as the monetary substance you can use to pay every spiritual debt or to buy every spiritual thing you need. So now that you have the riches of heaven, when Jesus says, be humble, you have a bank to withdraw humility from. Do you get that illustration? Now when the Bible says don't lust, you have a bank to draw purity out from. You are rich in the spiritual things of God. Amen. That's why you are who God said you are. You are this. You are this, therefore you can do this. Everybody say, I am who God said I am, and I can do what he said I can do. Amen. Let's go through the review now. That was the first review. You guys ready for the second review? Okay, now let's go over what we've already read before. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God saves those who admit their spiritual poverty. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God comforts those who mourn and give their, when they give their griefs and their pain to him, whether it's over our sin, whether it's over hurt and the things that have happened in this life. When we give those pains to God, he comforts us. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The Bible says that the meek are not weak. They're actually strong. Meekness is not weakness. It is strength under control. It is humility. I have said this before. I can throw my children across the room if I want, or I can be meek with them and teach them the things of our house, okay? And so exerting power at its full strength is not always the best thing to do. How many know that you have to sometimes dial back your rights, your strength, your point, your rightness in a conversation because you want to be meek. You want to be loving. Doesn't mean you, you admit to things that aren't true. Doesn't mean you uh, back down from every good fight in the sense of a fight of a, you know, standing up for what you believe in. It just means that not everything is worth you exerting your full strength. And the Bible says as a result of that, you inherit the earth, which was at that time very seditious because Rome had the earth, the, the known earth, most of it. And now Jesus is saying, my people are going to get this whole thing. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. We've talked about that what you hunger for, you get. If you're hungry for junk food today after service, you're going to fill up on it. And you got to be careful with that because then you might go to somebody's house and they got some real food to eat and now you're stuffed on junk food. And that's the way it can become spiritually. You hunger for sin so much that when you come to church, you have no room to fit in any righteousness. But the opposite is true as well. You hunger for righteousness. You go home and eat that great home-cooked meal today. You enjoy that. You won't want to look at a McDonald's hamburger. That's not going to tempt you today. Amen. When is McDonald's the most tempting? When you're hungry and you're lazy and don't want to go do the thing, right? Go home and cook and do all of that. And it's okay at times, but if we keep eating that junk food, we know what it results in. And it's the same thing with our sin. It's when we're lazy, when we don't take the things of God serious, and we settle. We settle for less than God's best. Be filled with righteousness. You can have as much righteousness in your life as you hunger for. God did not say it was determinative on his desire for what you would have as righteousness in your life. 
Because God's already said, I want you righteous on the computer. But do you hunger for righteousness on the computer? God's already said, I want you to be righteous in your marriage. But do you hunger for that? Children, the Bible has already said God wants you to be righteous with your parents. Do you hunger for that? Amen. The Bible says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Those who are kind, those who are forgiving, those who look to help others and not hurt others will be given that kind of mercy. So we need to be careful, those of us here who are truth tellers, people like myself who like to be bold, we have to seek mercy. We have to truly try to understand, be empathetic of where people are at. Sometimes the truth hurts. Sometimes we got to get people out of comfort zones. That's true. But we should always do it with love, treating them as we want to be treated. Amen. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The Bible literally says the pure in heart are going to see God one day. They're going to be in his presence, and they're going to look at him, and they're going to be, as the Bible says, transformed into his image as they're looking at him. And I don't know if you've ever done this, but it's kind of a neat little thing. It will you know, kind of expand your mind. If you put your camera in front of a mirror, it will reflect, won't it? It will come back. And then the moment it comes back, what's it going to do? On the camera or on the mirror, it's going to reflect back again. And then it's going to come back, and then it's going to come back. You're getting a taste of what infinite, the infinite looks like. That's going to be like you looking at Jesus. Back at, you're going to look at Jesus, then his image is going to come back to you. And you're going to see that he's making you like him from glory to glory. And then you're going to look back at Jesus, and then you're going to see back at what he's doing in your life. And it will be an infinite relationship going from glory to glory. Amen? You will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. I talked about this as a way of understanding settling arguments, being great leaders in our families, but this goes beyond just the kind of things that we see that we can solve right now, like, you know, the argument in your family or something on your job. This is actually a call for us in an entire culture. We are to bring peace to the entire west side. We are to bring peace to the politics. We are to bring peace to all that is at a storm or in turmoil in God's world. Think about that. You are the peacemaker of the world. Peacemakers. If we brought peace, if missionaries brought peace to the Muslims in Syria, there would be no more wars over there, right? If we brought peace to the different places where there's, where there's oppression and sex trafficking and those kinds of things. Right now, like in Central and South America, uh, these, these drug lords are taking over these places, and they're becoming one of the most dangerous places to live as a Christian. I just shared it from Open Doors on my Facebook page. If those drug dealers got saved, would that bring peace to those communities? Amen. So expand your vision. Obviously, start where you're at. Let's make peace with each other. If you don't like each other, talk to each other, okay? Forgive each other. Go back over some of these other things. But then let us pray for our nation. Let us pray for the nations of the world to bring peace to them. That's why the Bible says, you know, that Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. Because where we go, we bring peace. Can I hear an amen to that? Now, this one is the only one. The last one is the only one with a double blessing. And we would say, which one is this, the beatitude that comes with, you know, the double blessing? Is this the one that talks about us getting rich and having all this prosperity in life? No, the only one out of the beatitudes that has two blessings for the price of one is the persecution one. Look at what it says. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You and I get a double blessing when we suffer in Christ's name. That's how important it is to recognize this. The blessing of God is upon those who are persecuted. This is not for being a jerk. This is not for intentionally trying to offend people. But this is to let you know, if you find yourself in a culture that is against the teachings you just learned, teachings that teach the centrality of Jesus and those being rich only in him, teachings that say only those who come to Christ are comforted. Teachings that give us that the hunger of your soul is only satisfied in Jesus. Listen, you believe that in a culture that doesn't, you're going to be hated. You think people would be like all excited. Teach me how to be filled with righteousness. Teach me how to be at peace. Teach me how to have, you know, peace among my, my people. No, the Bible says that those who love darkness run from the light. 
And so let's just be honest. How many of us, before we were Christians, persecuted those who were giving us the Christian message? Come on, I always tell that story about me mooning my friends who were protesting against abortion. I was driving by and mooning them. Why? Because I wanted them to be persecuted because I thought that they were taking away the rights of people. I, I didn't see where they were coming from. I, I would call up the, you know, Christian TV hotline and pretend that I was demon-possessed. I would do this for fun. I'm being honest with you. I was a bad church kid, okay? I used to make out with kid, girls uh, in the church parking lot and sell drugs in the church park because my church parking lot had a little, little cut. You could go right down a little alley, and I used to go there and take girls there. I'm being honest. I'm not a proud of this at all. But then when people would catch me or do things, I would get angry with them. I would threaten them. Okay, And then when people would try to teach me about Christian morals, I would be upset with them. Why was I angry with them? Was it because um, there was this person named Tim? Tim was a bad person, and I didn't like Tim. No, Tim was my youth pastor, and he brought forth the righteousness of God. That's why I hated Tim when he would catch me doing that. Okay, And so you got to look at your heart and say, are people hating me because of how I'm treating them, or are they hating me because of what, what I'm saying? And most of the time, let's be honest, most of the time, they're hating you because of what you're saying. I've been with people in arguments, you know, I can get fired up and stuff, and I've been with them in an argument, and I've said, okay, you know, maybe I didn't say this the right way, let me slow it down a little bit, let me say it to you like this, and I've said it as calmly as I possibly can. The sexually immoral, which includes homosexuals, sex with girlfriends and boyfriends before marriage, Perversion with pornography, the sexually immoral shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And I've still had people get mad and get angry with me about that. I mean, how much more calmly could I have told you that? I mean, I could say it in a song. The sexually immoral shall not inherit the kingdom of God. I could dress up as a blue dinosaur, a purple dinosaur, and, and change my voice, but it doesn't change the content. And so when we look that Jesus is teaching us this, he says, look to the prophets as your example. And when we look to the prophets, we see all kinds of personalities. We see Jeremiah, a weeping prophet, that literally Jeremiah could not tell it without tears coming down his eyes. He, he's continually crying. This is actually immoral. You guys who are sexually immoral, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And they threw him in a pit. And then you got people like, like Jonah, like begrudgingly not wanting to go to Nineveh, running the total opposite way, and then coming and basically just saying it almost sarcastically. Y'all better repent or God's going to destroy you. And they're like, really? We're going to repent. Here one guy is weeping, weeping, and people won't repent. They throw him in a pit. And then Jonah comes and just basically just gets it off his chest because he's tired of being in, in whale puke, in the belly of a whale. And then they actually listen. Why? Because it's not the messenger. It's the message. And I know we want to put a smile on it, and we shouldn't be like Jonah in that story we should learn from his disobedience to be obedient and to have the right heart, okay? I get that. But the point is, even when you do it all right and you are crying, I remember crying at my Catholic grandmother's knees, begging her to accept Christ. Grandma, you don't have Jesus unless you're born again. She's like, oh, Joey, I go to Mass every day, Joey. She's Polish, you know, Joey, Joey. And I'm like, Grandma, listen, it's not about me. It's about Jesus. And I couldn't force her to accept Christ. I believe eventually she did towards the end of her life with my uh, aunt and my father leading her to Jesus. But the point is, when you preach, you will be persecuted. And notice the thing that Jesus says, they will falsely say all kinds of evil against you. And that's especially true in this culture right now. So when I say, you know, homosexuals in their sin cannot inherit the kingdom of God, people come back and go, well, what does that mean? You hate homosexuals? Never said it. You know, Islam is a demonic religion founded by a prophet that was demon-possessed. You hate all Muslims? Never said that. The mother of Guadalupe is inspired by a demon. You hate all Catholics? Father Tom is not your friend. Stop confessing to him. What, you don't love Catholic? No, I love all sinners. 
but I hate sin. Can I make it more simpler than that? I love all sinners, but I hate sin. I love Roman Catholics, hate Roman Catholicism. Love Muslims, hate Islam. I love communists, hate communism. I love homosexuals, hate homosexuality. The Bible teaches you to love what is good, cling to it, and hate what is evil. Uh, Jared, where is that found? See in the back somewhere? Let's go to Titus. I believe that's a passage in Titus, isn't it? Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. I want to show you that, just so you don't think I'm making stuff up here. I don't know, Thessalonians, please. Find out where Jared is, please. Oh, he's security? Amen. Romans what? 12.9. I was off in both cases. Thank you for helping me. Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Just write this one down. Be loving, be kind to people, and just get it in your heart. This is what you're going to do, okay? Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Love must be sincere. See, we're not called to be fake. If I'm with you and I'm preaching to you, I'm not saying like on the job we're talking about it 24-7. I know some of you are in uncomfortable situations in this world. The Bible says be like a Daniel. Daniel was prosperous in Babylon. If Daniel can be blessed in Babylon, you can be blessed working for Apple, for Jewel, or wherever you're at today on your job. God can bless you. You Be wise, the Bible says. Don't just let them fire you because you're being foolish all the time, being offensive. Be on that job. Stay on that job. Be prosperous on that job and then teach them to things of God at the opportunities that you have, like your breaks, home Bible studies, etc. So be sincere. Don't be fake. But look at what it says. Hey, what is what? What does it say? Hey, what is? Hey, what is evil? Cling to what is good. Amen. Any other questions, class? No, you guys got it. Okay, let's go back. Matthew chapter 5, those were the Beatitudes. Now, let me go through these ones that we've been through, and let's keep going. Bible says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, read this part with me. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. See, I have good deeds now. My good deeds are supposed to bring glory to God. You are supposed to look at my marriage and go, good deed. God's blessing Joe in his marriage. You are to look at my children and be like, good deed, six children, being raised in the fear of admonition of the Lord. You are to be able to hang around with me, hear my speech and the way I treat others and go, good deed. Joe is nice, patient, and kind. And when he's not, he's repentive, truly not wanting to repeat the errors of his anger. You should be able to have people around you point out your good deeds. As the old preachers used to say, if you were on trial today for being a Christian, would there be enough good deeds to convict you of being one? If you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough good deeds to convict you of one? I'm not saying we're saved by good deeds. Go back to the beginning. We're saved by spiritual poverty, admitting our sin, repenting, confessing Christ as our righteousness. But there ought to be good deeds following our life. Two examples there are salt and light. He says if salt loses its saltiness, it's good for nothing. It's thrown out. That is literally the way we're supposed to see our lives if we don't want to live good deeds. We're good for nothing in the kingdom of God. Those who call themselves Christians but do not have the good deeds of Christians are good for nothing in the kingdom. You are like a lamp being put under a bowl. Does a lamp being put under a bowl have any positive purpose? No, it's good for nothing. If you have salt in something like a little pinch of salt in a 20-gallon thing, let's say we're boiling up crawfish, and you need to usually use about a cup of salt. If I put a pinch of salt in 20 gallons of water, is that salt good for anything? No, it has lost its ability to do what salt was supposed to do in that 
dish that I'm making. And so the idea is if you've got so much of the world in you and you don't have enough salt in you, you are good for nothing in the kingdom of God. If you take your light, the good deeds, the things you learn here and go hide them behind your wicked behavior to fit in on your job and to be with everybody without causing any problems, you're good for nothing. The Bible says don't live like that. Live the opposite of that. Be the flavor. Be the Goya of this culture. Amen. Flavor this culture. Be the cayenne pepper, the salsone of this culture. Be the, be the cilantro. Whatever spice you want to use, think of yourself that way and be the light that lights the path for others. They see your good deeds and they go, I want to follow the path you're on. Amen. Amen. Verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches, somebody say practice and teach. Amen. That's how you're supposed to live a Christian life. You practice what you preach. You practice what you preach. You don't stop practicing and you don't stop preaching. You practice what you teach. You practice what you preach. Whoever practices and teaches these commands will be great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Why do we still have an Old Testament? Because the Old Testament is like first grade. And it teaches us why we're now in the New Testament second grade. Is first grade done away with? No, first grade is fulfilled in Jesus. We all failed it. Nobody could pass it. Now in Jesus, it's fulfilled, and we learn how to follow him in the second grade. If you lose Jesus in the second grade and try to go back to the first grade, you're going to fail all over again. That's what it's like to try to go back to the Jewish laws without Christ. In Christ, the Jewish laws are fulfilled. That's what he said. I'm not changing them. I'm fulfilling them. Are there some things we're still waiting to be fulfilled? Yes, there are some feast days we're waiting to be fulfilled. Passovers where he was crucified and resurrected, and then first fruits is when the Holy Spirit was poured out, but we're waiting for the, for the feast of trumpets and the feast of bulls, of tab, uh, uh, booths rather, of tabernacles, where we get a new body and where Christ comes back, but those are fulfilled in him. Jesus is all the feast days, all the laws. And then what does he tell us to do? Teach and do what he says. So if he's not reiterating us to go back and do animal sacrifice, we don't do it. If he's not teaching us to the, the laws of civil government to stone people when they commit adultery, we're not going to go back and do it. We're not going back. We're moving forward with the one who fulfilled it. Why don't we stone people? Is it because God was angry and a bad God in the Old Testament and now he's nice Jesus in the New Testament? No, he's still a God of justice, but Jesus fulfilled all of the civil punishments for sin on the cross. That's why we're not stoning adulterers is because Jesus took the punishment for adulterers. It's not that the stoning of adultery command was a bad command. Never think to yourself because it's fulfilled, it means it was bad. It was good. It was holy. As I'm reading right now in my personal devotions through Psalm 119, David goes through every letter of the Hebrew alphabet and writes a poem about his love for the law of God. It's like A is for Adam, he fell into sin. Jesus, reborn, uh, uh, Jesus died for us so we could be born again. He starts with every letter of the Hebrew alphabet and writes a poem about the love of God that he has for the law. And so if I get a chance, by God's grace, after this sermon series, I'm going to go through each one of those. So we don't hate the law. We don't put down the law and be like, man, that law was stupid. No, the dietary law taught us about purity. We can now eat things. Jesus said it's okay to eat things. It's not what goes into you that defiles you. It's what comes out of your heart. He was clear about that. It's not a stomach issue. It's a heart issue. But why did God give us stomach laws, dietary laws, to teach us about heart laws? Fulfilled doesn't mean changed. Everybody get this. Fulfilled doesn't mean disapproved. First grade was great. It just wasn't as good as second grade. We don't forget about first grade. We keep the old covenant to remind us of everything Jesus did for us. Can I hear an amen? And then we teach what Jesus taught us to teach, and we move forward with his teachings called the law of Christ. 
Now he's going to reiterate the laws of the Old Testament and tell, them, tell us how now they're fulfilled in the New Testament. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, which was true. That's the Ten Commandments. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. That's good. That's not a bad law. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. So does he, listen, does he go from first grade being the law back to kindergarten? Everything goes because you're forgiven now. No, follow the illustration. If the law is first grade, he makes it harder now in second grade. In first grade, you couldn't kill people. In second grade, you can't be angry wrongly with people. Do you see the difference? So the fulfilling of the first, some of you are like, yeah, it's so much easier now in the second grade. No, it's actually impossible in the second grade. You, you can't do it without Christ. But with Christ, you can. Does everybody get that? He said in the old covenant, it wasn't an internal relationship I had with you. It was a relationship externally. And the most I could expect from you was not to kill each other. Now that I'm coming internally, now that the kingdom of God is coming inwardly, I'm going to hold you to a higher standard than just not killing each other. I'm going to hold you to the standard of not being angry wrongly with each other. Does everybody get that, how deep that goes? In the old covenant, it was like there was a police officer every couple of blocks making sure you stopped at the stop sign. In the new covenant, the police officer drives in the car everywhere you go. Do you see the difference? One is from the external now it's in the internal. The kingdom of God has come in, come into us. The kingdom of God was around them in the old covenant, and they would see it at times and go into the tabernacle and interact with God. Now we're the temple, and now we are where God dwells, and we're expected to live to a higher standard. He says, but I tell you, anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Pull up the King James Version of this, please. Because Jesus called people fools all the time. And uh, like Mr. T, we pity the fool, right? Here's a little bit extra, and I accept the uh, more uh, what we call the Texas Receptus, the more older translations um, of the King James and other versions. I accept that just a bit more than what we would consider in the new translations. It says that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause. Do you see that phrase right there? Without a cause. We could get into Bible translations and why some, some manuscripts didn't have that and why the King James and those guys kind of go back and forth or people who look at it. But I think this helps clarify that statement. Those who are angry with their brother without a what? without a cause. So when Jesus is calling people fools in Matthew chapter 23, is he violating what he said in Matthew chapter 5? No, because it's with a cause. It's with a purpose. But if you're angry without cause and saying unwholesome words, you'll be accountable for those things. Now notice this. It says, whoever says Raka will be answerable to the court. Anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. This is one thing as we go back to the notes that I don't understand. Why is it Jesus, and probably his most popular message, most widely accepted message, he's already making threats of hell, and when preachers like me do it, people get offended. Are you threatening me? I'm like, no, I'm not threatening you, but God is. How do you like that? Here's, here's the truth. If you don't do this right, you go to hell. Well, I don't believe in a God that would send anybody to hell who doesn't do things his way. What kind of an insecure God would do that? My God would never do that. That's true. You're absolutely right. Your God would never send anybody to hell. You want to know why? Because your God doesn't exist. Your God is a make-believe God. Your God hangs out with Snuffleupagus and Big Bird. My God, the God of the Bible... He talked about hell in all kinds of places to get you to get the point. You don't want to do this? You don't want to handle your temper? You don't want to watch your words? You're in danger of the hellfire. Fire of hell. You're in danger of that. That doesn't mean Jesus didn't love us. 40%, they say, I just heard this from a scholar, 40% of Jesus' teachings include warnings. Jesus talked more about hell than he did about heaven. You'll hear no description of, of heaven here. No description of it. All you'll hear is when it talks about the afterlife is a description of, of hell. Why? Because heaven is where God is. That's all you need to know. Hell is all these other things you need to know because you don't know. Like, like you get it, there's a heaven and there's God there, and that should be enough. But some of us don't understand what hell is, and Jesus is going to keep explaining it so you do know, so you get it. You don't want to go there. Let's keep going. 
Therefore, if, any, if, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and therefore remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of them. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Therefore, I tell you, truly, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. What does this teach us? Be reconciled to people. Even if it involves the court, be reconciled to people because it can go worse for you if you don't. Let's go to the next one, verse 27. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. See, that's first grade. Don't cheat on your wife or don't cheat with some, your husband or your wife, your spouse, and don't cheat with somebody who's married. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now let's see how serious Jesus takes second grade ethics, the new covenant ethics. Because when I talk to men about lust, they go, well, hey, man, I'm just a dude. All men lust. This is not that big of a deal, pastor. You know, I'm not really acting on it. At least I'm not cheating on my wife, or at least I'm not having sex with all these girls. I just look at them naked here, or I lust when I'm on the job. Let's see how serious Jesus took the issue of lust. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And I get men offended at me when I talk like that. Well, I just can't help it. Get born again and you can help it. Well, I'm just too poor. I'm too broke to get off of, uh, you know, pornography. That's right. You're too, too broke to do it on your own. Get born again and you'll have all the riches of righteousness. Well, pastor, I tried it, and it didn't work. You're a liar. It works every time. I haven't looked at pornography since 96, and I can tell you my heart was just as wicked as yours. Oh, well, pastor, it's just normal for guys. No, it's not. God made us pure and holy when we were born again. It's normal to have a pure heart, to see God, not a woman naked or not a man naked. Are you listening? Well, pastor, you know, God will just forgive me. It's not that big of a deal. God says if you take it like that, it's better for you to gouge out your eye. So is that a metaphor or is that literal? I'll let you figure that out. So if I, I come here next week and you're missing an eye, okay, you got lust under control? Because I know it's silly. I know it's silly. But, I mean, let's just be, and he says, and if your right hand causes you to sin, and every man knows about their right hand and some lotion in a bathroom by themselves. We're, we're, we're all old enough to hear that here. You think he's playing? Why do you think he said a right eye and a, uh, an eye and a right hand? Because he knows what men do with themselves. You can't be trusted with the, by yourself, let alone with a woman. You can't be trusted with yourself. You start looking at stuff online. Oh, here comes your right hand. Here comes your right hand. Yeah, I'm talking about it. Grow up and understand it. It's okay to laugh, but grow up and understand it. He said, if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. How much more serious could our Jesus be? If you want to take it all as metaphor, I'm totally cool with that. But I think there's probably some practical applications here. Your computer causes you to sin. Your, your phone causes you to sin. Shut it off and just put it to you can dial out. Take off every internet browser. Your relationships cause you to sin. You go out with these ladies, these guys. It works up your hormones. Cut off every one of those relationships. You can't talk to those old boos without getting fired up. In your, cut off every old boo. Cut off everything. Delete their numbers. This is serious. Sexual perversion is probably the number one reason why I see people going to hell in the church. In the church. Okay, because remember right here, he's not talking to a pagan Roman society. It's his disciples. He's looking at his disciples picking out the biggest issues in their life. That's why he's not talking about pedophilia and rape and all the things the Roman Empire did. He's talking to actual disciples, and he says, you guys got a problem with anger. You guys got a problem with bitterness. You always suing each other, never reconcile. And you guys got a problem with lust. You better cut some stuff off and stop making excuses, or you will go your whole body to hell. That's how much Jesus loved us. Amen? Amen? Praise God for the truth. If you have children in the back, go ahead and get them because I'm going to rock through this in Jesus' name. Come on, say, Pastor, you can do it. I believe I can.
It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Adultery is serious. But that is the only reason for divorce. Now, some people ask, if I have a divorce outside of this reason, is it an unforgivable sin? No, but it is a sin. And if your wife or your spouse, former spouse, is still single, you should make amends and do as best as you can to see where are you at in life because you may be still held accountable for that sin. So don't just say, I'm going to sin, be forgiven, and then sin again if you know that person is still single. And I believe in restoration. I've heard of Christian couples getting divorced because of unbiblical reasons and then coming back together because it is a compounded sin. It's not that you can't be forgiven, it, but listen to me. If you're already thinking to yourself, well, there's no point in trying to be reconciled now. It's already over. You're purposely saying to God, I'm going to disobey a command. See how that will go for you in life. Follow this command that says, if I divorce wrongly and my spouse is still, not, my spouse is still single, former spouse, go try to be reconciled to them. And then you can say with clean hands, I've done all that I've done. It is what it is. Lord, forgive me for divorcing in the first place. Instead of it being a compounded sin. Because listen, the devil will take advantage of that heart that is unwilling to obey that command and get you to stop obeying other commands. All the devil ever needs is just a hook. And so often we say to ourselves, well, that's not a big command. I can break this one a little bit. But the devil says, all I need is that one hook, and then it'll drag you through life. Okay? Be reconciled. And those of you here, because we have a lot of divorcees here. My parents were divorced, unbiblical. My mom had a biblical reason for divorce, the adultery. Now, some people may say real quick, what about abuse? I say leave that joker as fast as you can, but don't file the divorce papers until they commit adultery. So you're separated. You're separated until they commit adultery. And generally, if you're speaking about a man, typically, but women can't abuse men. But typically, the one that's been separated from it, they're willing to abuse you. They'll cheat on you, and then by God's grace, you'll have your hands clean. But that separation could lead to their salvation, to their repentance, and possibly some jail time, okay? So we'll help you push char- press charges as well. And if you're in that situation today, come to us after this service. We'll help you. You won't be the first. Amen. Somebody say Amen. Amen. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head. You cannot make even one of your hair white or black. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. They used to make all these elaborate oaths and all these things. We should just say yes or no. Even swearing on the Bible is not biblical, though I appreciate the mindset, and we are not violating our conscience if they ask us to do it, because it's their law that requires the oath, but if I was redoing what it was, I would say, do you promise to say the whole truth and all? I wouldn't swear. I would just say, do you promise? That would be my little caveat. But somebody may say, well, a promise is like an oath. Then just ask them, are you going to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth So help you, God? Yes, I will. Then that would be fine. Okay. But if they're asking you to do that under the laws of um, this country, you are not violating Scripture. You know in your heart it's not your desire to make that oath. Now, if you want to take it a little bit more literal and say, I don't make oaths, then that's between you and them. Okay? Verse 38. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Anyone who slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt and hand hand over your coat as well, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give the one who asks you and do not turn from the one who wants to borrow from you. Everybody turn to your neighbor and ask for $100. You're about ready to get paid. You are about ready to get paid. Every parent, ask your kid, every kid, child, ask your parents for the keys to the car. Anybody that's got a nice car, ask your friend for their car. Do you got the Tesla yet? Okay, when you get it, let me know because I want to borrow it from you. I want to have it. Oh, thank you. So this is the one everybody likes to throw back at the Christian and go, oh, you Christians, you don't follow this. If you were to go through each one of these things, now remember this. I didn't get a chance to say it today, but I have preached over 20 messages on every one of these passages. 
This is a sermon series on Matthew, where if I got parked here, it, I think it would be about 25 messages from five to seven alone. And I want to go through this this year, okay? So let me just say this about this passage. The idea of turning the other cheek being slapped, that was in their courts. They could slap you. Jesus was slapped. Paul was slapped. What he's saying is don't resist them in that way. He's not talking about if someone's wanting to slap you, then kick you, and then beat you. I believe in just war. I believe the Bible believes in just war. What it's talking about is in a governmental oppressive way, if they're messing with you, let them mess with you and trust God for the best that you can get from that situation. Now, in other situations, the Bible says that he who, get, who carries the sword in Romans chapter 14, I believe, is it Romans? No, 13. Romans 13 carries the sword, looking around the people who know their Bible. Let me just make sure it's Romans 13. Okay, there you are, Jerry. Were you back there having fun today? How are the kids doing? They're doing good? This is my walking Bible man right here. Okay, Rome, let's give it up for Pastor Jerry. He's awesome. Amen. Okay, so we are not to cause rebellion. We are to be humble. Now, some people ask about the American Revolution and other revolutions. I think those are different because they turned the other cheek they let them have the shirt. They went the extra mile. Roman soldiers could require you to do that. And they gave to them all the taxes that they want. And then after that, they were still oppressed. They were still under ungodly authority. So I think there are times to rise up and to fight. I really do. I don't think Jesus was talking about if I watch someone slap my child, I'm supposed to let them keep slapping them or to rape my wife and so forth. I believe what he's talking about is when government's doing evil, they're requiring things of you, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. I think in other places of the Bible, like we learned in the Old Testament, as Jesus talks a little bit about in other books of the Bible, because I believe Jesus inspired Romans and other places, we have just war theory, just war. So that means we are not pacifists. The Quakers are pacifists. Jehovah Witnesses, as a cult, they're pacifists. We are not pacifists in this church. We believe in just war. Amen? Okay, that's just for another time. Love your enemies, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now let me stop right here. Every other thing he was hitting these guys with were literally things from the Old Testament that they were taking advantage of. They were taking advantage of not murdering, but then hating people. They were taking advantage of not committing adultery, but lusting all the time. They were taking advantage of just divorcing at whim whenever they were done with their wife. They were just doing that. They were taking advantage of their oaths. They would swear all these elaborate things and then still break their word. They were taking advantage of people, okay? This one is what I believe was what they would say because it's never found in the scripture to hate your enemy. Everybody get that? At times they hated their enemies, but it's never commanded to hate their enemy. And the times that David says, David said it like this, I hate those who hate your law with a righteous hatred. I believe David is saying what we're talking about, hating the sin, okay? But here's the deal. They believe this, and it's probably found in their Talmud, their extra-biblical traditions. And Jesus says, no, but I tell you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sons reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. You notice he still calls them evil. Is it unloving to call somebody evil? No, you call them evil, but you still love them. Do you see that? Is it wrong to say somebody's unrighteous? No, but you still love them. And then look at verse 46. Adam, if you could come, please. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's go back to the sandwich in closing, please. I want everybody to see it. How many got something out of this today? Amen. Amen. As I said before, if you want more depth, go to the lessons that I spent a week just on being poor in spirit, a week on salt and light, an entire message just on loving your enemy, an entire message on fighting adultery and the spirit of lust. Okay, so I have plenty of resources to give you there, but I wanted you to get your sandwich today. Here it is. God teaches us 
that we have to admit our spiritual depravity, our spiritual bankruptcy. When we do, we have the ability to do all of these things because we be who God called us to be. What is the one thing you have to do to become this person? Notice what I said. There is a do before you become. What is the one thing you have to do? Repent of your sins. Be saved by believing in Jesus. Is everybody here able to do that? Yes. Therefore, you are responsible to do that. Responsible means able to respond. So my prayer before we leave today is that everyone will partake of the perfection sandwich. That everyone will hunger for this. That you will thirst for this. That you won't see what we read here as something impossible with Christ. You'll see this as your target in life. This is who I want to be. I want to be perfect for my Father is perfect. I want to be free from anger because God made me to love. I want to be free from offense because God made me to forgive. I want to be free from unbiblical divorce because God made me to suffer long and to see change in my marriage. I want to be free from the turmoil and the evil of this world. And I want to surrender everything to God in a life of sacrifice. Why can we turn the other cheek? Because we trust God with our lives. Why can we, you know, see what's going on in our culture right now and not fight and start a civil war? Because we love them. We love them even though they persecute us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today. Altar workers, would you come, please? We thank you for your word. Second service, folks, you guys can start to come in from the lobby. As the altar workers are coming right now, thank the Father for what he's given you through these teachings of Jesus. Father, we thank you for what we've learned today. As you're thanking the Father, would you just stand up right now and raise up your hands and say, Lord, I surrender. If you're not a Christian, do the one thing you have to do to be a Christian. Repent of your sins. Admit your spiritual poverty. Believe in Jesus, and you'll be saved. The rest of us, hands raised, who are our Christians already, are you who God wants you to be today? Say to the Lord, search my heart, Jesus. Search my heart, Lord. Is there any ungodly anger in me today? Convict me. God, is there any lust in my heart? Convict me. God, am I breaking my word, walking in offense? Convict me and change me. Rearrange me. Show me who I am today. Whether you're becoming a Christian or asking Christ to help you live like a Christian, all hands raised as a sign of surrender. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Just pray for a few moments before we go. We're going to start bringing the second service, folks. We like to transition during this time of altar, but we'll dismiss formally in just a moment. This is where our second in service and first service overlap. We like to end one with prayer and start the other one with prayer. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We admit our need for you, God. Jesus, Jesus. Amen. Our hands raised. Come on. Holy Ghost, stick up. Keep them up. Amen. We surrender. We surrender. And I am perfect like my Father is perfect. Come on. I am perfect like my Father is perfect. Sing it out today. You're poor no more. You are rich in the things of God. 
If you need prayer, come up now before we dismiss. Now that you've prayed on your own, come on up if you want to pray with us. If you're accepting Christ, come on up. If you want the baptism of the Holy Spirit, if you need help overcoming sin or want to be discipled, Second service, folks, I'm going to ask you to start coming to these altars. And first service, people who want to hang out for your after party, come on. Otherwise, we'll dismiss in just a moment. But study these scriptures this week. Let us all put them deep within our soul so that God can teach us how to live them. Father, thank you for today. May we always love you. May we live like you. May there be good deeds following our life so that people may glorify you. Help us to do this. Father, in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Give it up for Jesus, saints. God bless you.